Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Environmental Studies. I'm your host today. My name is Brian Hamilton, and we're lucky to be joined by William Bryan, an environmental historian based out of Atlanta and the author of The Price of Permanence, Nature and Business in the New South, which is out just published about a couple weeks ago, just under two weeks ago by the University of Georgia Press. Will, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brian. Happy to be here. Well, at long last, we are getting a book-length environmental history of the New South. However, you want to define that, uh, whether it's a, uh, a, you know, referring to the specific time period in the decades following the Civil War, or a process of reconstructing the Southern economy, or an idea in the minds of you know, politicians and, and business people in the American South. Um, but I, I wonder if we can, and it's really just a tremendous book. I think it has so much to offer to Southern historians and environmental humanists, um, as well as kind of general history buffs and, and even, I think, environmental activists and policymakers. And I hope that'll become clear during the course of our conversation. But I was hoping that we could just start with setting the scene a bit. And so if you could maybe just sketch out for us, what, were, you know, what was the state of the American South's economy and landscapes in the wake of the Civil War? Absolutely. Yeah, it's, you know, it's an unprecedented time period, which is one of the reasons I was kind of drawn to this period initially. Um, you know, really, the South is at the forefront of the national debate uh, for all Americans following the end of the Civil War. Um, emancipation, four years of war had essentially swept away the South's uh, economy based on plantation agriculture. Uh, it had completely upended its slave-based social structure, although, you know, some of that might might come back uh, in, in New South um, legal codes. Uh, two-thirds of the region's wealth had just kind of evaporated overnight. Uh, its cities were in ruins from Atlanta to Columbia to, to Richmond. Uh, farms really aren't working anymore. And then, you know, there's basically no functioning transportation or industrial infrastructure uh, in the region. And, and so this is a period when Southerners and really, I think all Americans kind of have to grapple with what is the future of this region um, in, in a really kind of broad way. Uh, and there are a lot of different visions for what that looked like. Um, but everybody, you know, it was pretty clear to everyone that some sort of new South uh, would have to replace the region's antebellum plantation society. And, and one of my favorite quotes about what this, uh, you know, kind of looked like on the ground comes from a, a ruined rice planter from South Carolina named Ben Alston. 
who says this, he says, we must begin at the beginning again, we must make a new start. And that's really an unprecedented thing for any part of the United States to envision, to attempt, uh, to confront. Um, no other part of the United States had really ever attempted rebuilding the region on, on this scale, re-envisioning the region's economy on this scale. Um, and this isn't just an economic and environmental re-envisioning. This is, you know, it requires reimagining uh, labor systems, legal codes, social hierarchies, political ideologies, and the future of the entire United States in a lot of ways was really dependent on how successfully that, that was done. Um, and so, you know, this is, this is really an unprecedented time when Southerners have an opportunity to sort of remake the region, re-envision the future of the region. Um, and, and, you know, I think that's one of the things that initially drew me to, to this period. And I, I can talk more about that, but, I, you know, I didn't necessarily think I would be talking about sustainability at the end of this project. Um, but that's <laughs> certainly, uh, you know, just this kind of in this blank slate aspect of it is, is what I think drew me to this period initially. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so the, the people that are your main characters, which are mostly you know, business people and, and policymakers in the South, you know, they look out at all this destruction and they project optimism. Like you're saying, they see this blank slate and say, no, it's a good thing. Um, why was that? You know, what was their source of their sunny disposition? Yeah, a, a little surprising, I think, that you could look at all of this and, and be optimistic. Um, but they were, you know, sort of always optimistic, which is which gets to be hard to read in some cases. But, um, you know, they, they basically are, are incredibly optimistic that despite this steep challenge, uh, the South has what it takes to become prosperous once again, very, very quickly. And, and I think what, what really kind of undergirds a lot of that optimism is that boosters, I'm, I'm, I'm especially talking about white boosters, public officials, um, you know, business people, uh, but they have this sort of idea that the South has just abundant stores of untapped natural resources that would trigger economic development on a scale that the antebellum South really had never been able to, uh, to realize. Uh, there's this great image that I include in the book from uh, an exhibition, a famous ex exhibition in Atlanta in 1895. Uh, and it's, it's a print that was sort of distributed at this exhibition and it was intended to kind of symbolize the new South. Uh, and the print has the ruins of the civil war at the bottom. It has these cannons and kind of ashes and broken swords sort of littering the bottom of the scene. And then out of that destruction, you have the personification of the New South, which is a white woman rising from these ashes. And in her hand is this cornucopia of natural resources, coal, cotton, iron, water, that type of thing. And so there's this, this real optimism that, you know, the, the South can become prosperous again, that the South can, uh, you know, rebuild its economy and, and become even more prosperous than the antebellum South had been by tapping into these natural resources that in a lot of cases, uh, public officials in the, in the region and outside of it believed had been wasted by their sort of antebellum uh, predecessors. Uh, many of these boosters and public officials look to the antebellum South and they say, you know, it was wrong that Southerners focused only on 
plantation agriculture and they ignored the abundant, you know, coal, they ignored, ignored the abundant uh, forests, they ignored these untapped rivers that can provide industrial power. And so they believe that, you know, essentially this antebellum plantation society had only focused on soils and had ignored the rest of the region's abundant resources, uh, and that that would pay off in the New South, that they would, you know, be able to create a much more long-lasting economic development and a much more prosperous one by kind of broadening out what that looked like and by drawing on all of these sources of natural resources that were that were ignored, at least in theory, by, by antebellum Southerners. Yeah, you know, we're talking on the uh, one-year anniversary of violence in Charlottesville last year. And at one point when you're introducing these folks and these boosters, you compared, um, you know, the, the famous white supremacist myth of the lost cause and these rose-colored politically freighted memories of the antebellum South with, with these boosters, what you call their memory of the environment. What do you mean by that? Yeah, yeah. You know, it occurred to me that um, in some ways, the way that these people talked about nature mirrors the way that they talked about the Civil War and the way that they talked about the social hierarchy in the South. Um, and, and in particular, I mean, historians have known for a long time that the lost cause is not a reflection of reality on the ground. Uh, you know, this is what white boosters wanted, essentially, you know, what they sort of built their social vision for the New South on. And it was a very exploitative social vision. And they used kind of a particular way of remembering the Civil War and casting the Civil War to, to sort of justify these very exploitative social measures that they took during the New South. And it, it occurred to me that, uh, you know, a little bit of a similar thing was going on with the environment. Um, and, you know, because you see the word abundant um, hundreds, probably even thousands of times uh, during <laughs> this New South period, it gets it gets real tiring to read just these sort of <laughs> Uh, super optimistic reports of how every area in the South is going to be prosperous because of their abundant and untapped natural resources. Um, and, and while some of that may be true, right, some areas did have abundant natural resources. The South was a huge region. It's 800,000 square miles, uh, at least the South that I'm writing about. And so, sure, yeah, there are some places with abundant natural resources, but there are also some places that, that don't have these abundant natural resources. Um, and yet it didn't really matter to boosters because, you know, the idea of abundance kind of cut across reality in a way. It was a way of sort of talking about the South that didn't necessarily mirror what was going on on the ground. Um, and just like the lost cause, this kind of myth of the lost cause that white Southerners constructed in the years after the Civil War to justify an exploitative social system, um, you know, was intended to kind of create political change. I, I think the same thing is true of this sort of myth of abundance that Southerners create uh, when they think about nature. Um, you know, basically they sort of tap into this, uh, what I call a memory of the environment to justify building a region that looks a lot more like the industrial urban north than it does the antebellum plantation south. And so in a way, you know, using this sort of idea that the South has abund an abundance of natural resources, um, it's intended to create uh, action. It's, it's, you know, it's a program of action rather than a reflection of reality on the ground. It's, it's intended to justify uh, rebuilding the region in the image of the North. It's intended to um, essentially attract investors from the North to invest in Southern development because um, 
Southerners at the time really had very little capital that they could invest in things like factories or, or other kind of industrial ventures. Uh, and so it's, you know, they, they kind of create these particular, particular, and I think mythic sort of ideas of what the Southern environment is to justify their plans for rebuilding the region in the aftermath of the Civil War. And it ties in very nicely with this sort of idea that they promote that, you know, this is going to be a new South. This is not the old South of sort of antebellum plantations that were inefficient, that only used soils, you know, that were based in slavery. This is a new South, a modern South, a South that's based on uh, factories, that's based on water power, that's based on um, commercial development in a way that really um, eclipsed what what had gone on during the, the antebellum South. So this this myth, I think, of of the abundance of the South's resources, while sometimes it's true, sometimes it's not, you know, it's, it's mostly constructed just to promote this very particular idea for what the South should be in the aftermath of the Civil War. And it's one that makes it uh, kind of much more, uh, you know, it basically kind of is intent on rebuilding the South in the image of the, of the North. A big co- contribution of your book is to make us see that a major concern, perhaps the major concern of these folks, these boosters, was something that they referred to as permanence. Now, that's a word that I, that I, you know, I had really only associated with Samuel Hayes's classic study of environmental politics after World War II. And, and you say that that's not what you're talking about. He's talking about, you know, ecological damage long time, you know, that kind of thing. But um, after reading your book, and, you know, I'm someone who writes about the South, and I'm embarrassed to not have realized the currency that the word permanence had in the South for decades before World War II. I would say much more currency than it had among environmentalists after World War II. But, but uh, you know, it was everywhere. It was on people's lips in every corner of the region throughout this period. And, and at the very center of you know, crucial debates uh, about economic development. Um, and you, you note that your folks are using it, you know, you know, using it in this very particular way. So what do they mean by it? Yeah, you know, I, I was just as surprised in some ways as, as you were because, you know, nobody really talks <laughs> about this word in, in this context. And... And yet, as I, you know, read about the the New South and as I, I sort of delved into the research on this, yeah, it just kept popping up everywhere from every kind of corner of the region, every small town, every big city, you know, even rural areas, you see boosters, public officials, business people using this word. Um, and it kind of cuts across, you know, these different, the South is, is a very diverse place. Um, you know, it's made up of a lot of different small regions, but this word and sort of the idea of what this means cuts across all of these. And that I think, you know, as I started to realize that really became the core, the core of the book. And I think at its most basic, um, what they mean when they say permanence is when an industry or an enterprise of some sort manages the natural resources that it needs for production of whatever it is that it's making for long-term use rather than just kind of exploiting them to depletion. Um, You know, I think the literature on the New South kind of, in in, in a lot of ways, caricatures the boosters um, who are kind of at the heart in some ways of this this New South vision uh, by painting them as these, you know, development-crazed industrialists who are hell-bent on, you know, building up the South um, and, and really did not care if that meant just exploiting the South's resources to depletion. Um, and I, I think that's not actually true. I, I think, you know, really they, they do want to build something that is lasting, something that, as they say, is permanent. 
you know, they want the region to, uh, they want this, this new South as they call it to be something that doesn't just kind of fizzle away, something that's going to be, uh, prosperous, something that's going to go on for, for quite some time. And so the word they, they use is permanent. And the idea is that if you base, Southern economic development on industries that were considered to be permanent industries that manage resources rather than just kind of exploiting them to depletion, then the region as a whole can kind of have this, um, you know, long lasting economic development that will continually be prosperous really for, for all time. Um, and so, you know, I think it's, it's this idea of permanence is in, in a lot of ways very different than what Samuel Hayes is talking about. First of all, there's, there's really no conception of quality of life here. Um, you know, I, I think the kind of post-World <laughs> War II environmental movement, you know, their quality of life is, is really kind of an integral part of that. Uh, that is not at all a part of this concept of, of permanence. Um, second of all, it's really driven primarily by business leaders, by public officials, by uh, boosters, um, groups that are intent on rebuilding the South's economy. And they see this as a, a really kind of key strategy. Um, and it, they're drawing on a lot of kind of national trends uh, when, when they sort of develop this idea. Um, they're very influenced by the national conservation movement, which promotes sort of the efficient use of natural resources. Um, but this idea of permanence really kind of grows out of, I think, a very distinct Southern context, because Southern boosters sort of see what national conservationists are saying about the need to conserve resources, about declines in raw materials for valuable industries, but they also see that the ways that these issues are being addressed in other regions are primarily through federal management of resource stocks. And that is not something that they were interested in. And so the idea of permanence really came to mean, uh, you know, managing resources for production for long-term use rather than exploiting them to depletion. But it came to mean that in a very particular sense. Um, this wasn't a sense that, you know, involved federal resource managers. This was when industries themselves would would actually sort of take action to head off, you know, kind of crashing stocks of natural resources. And so it's, it's very much a, a vision based on like private conservation measures. Um, it's based on essentially sort of the idea that if businesses can take action and uh, succeed, then they can keep the federal government out of the region and they can keep the federal government from intervening by, you know, imposing, as, as they would say, sort of this conservation program onto the South. Um, and so it's, it's, you know, it takes some ideas from the national conservation movement, especially ideas like efficiency and the need to kind of manage resources for long-term use, but it, but it infuses them with this distinctly Southern context that stresses that these things should always be done privately. Um, and, and really kind of tries to divorce them from the idea of federal management of, of natural, natural resources. Yeah, there's that great moment where Gifford Pinchot, the kind of the, the torchbearer of federal conservation, is the idea of him speaking, addressing the South Carolina Assembly, I think, is it, is it comes up and then they say, ah, no, thanks. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And, and there's other opportunities where, you know, Pinchot has um, Southern business officials come and speak at these various national uh, events, at least in theory, to kind of, you know, his sort of idea of federal management of resources was was a bit under assault, uh, under assault at the time by by uh, Western states. And so he, he brings Southern business officials in basically to support 
you know, sort of federal management of, of natural resources. And, and they, they don't really, they, they promote, you know, private, <laughs> uh, you know, at least private measures of using these resources um, in a way that I'm sure must have been quite surprising to, to him. <laughs> well, as you get into the book here, you know, the first sector of the economy that you zoom in on um, to look at these sort of attempts to reform the economy toward permanence is agriculture. And, you know, there were famously lots of calls to reshape and diversify Southern agriculture after the Civil War. Yet by the end of the period you're looking at, cotton is more entrenched than ever. Um, but you argue that, that kind of ironically, that this is at least partially the result of the success of these permanence reforms, not their failure. Why was that? Right. Yeah. You know, agriculture, I think, is, is really where these debates over permanence that I trace throughout the book start. Because most people at the time in the aftermath of the Civil War realized that it, agriculture was not going to go away. You weren't simply going to transform uh, from a plantation-based society to a completely industrial society overnight. And so that agriculture was, was kind of a, a part of the equation of uh, sort of putting the South back together again after the Civil War. Um, it's also where we start to see sort of a strain on natural resources, maybe the first. And I think that's why people begin to focus on agriculture pretty early on. Um, you know, by the end of the Civil War, soils throughout the region had been very intensively cultivated uh, in some parts of the region for, for you know, two centuries. Uh, and so really the question that people are considering is, yeah, and I think this is kind of what this idea of permanence is based on, is, you know, how do we keep farming but how do we do it in a way that's going to let us do it continuously? And so this idea that they need to be able to continuously cultivate soils, um, I think, is what drives sort of the search for permanence in the agricultural sector. Um, and, you know, if you kind of look back to the antebellum South, in some ways it was a lesson in how that didn't work uh, because plantations, you know, basically very intensively cultivated the soil and, as the Civil War approached, plantations in the East, places like South Carolina, uh, you know, the soils there were beginning to lose their fertility. And you saw these planters migrating to the West. And so, you know, for a lot of people, that was evidence that this kind of plantation style of agriculture was not permanent, that it did not allow you to continuously cultivate soils. And so after the Civil War, there's this kind of robust debate about what actually, you know, what methods would allow you to farm you know, continuously for all, for all time. Um, how, and, and really kind of what I think becomes a key part of this is how do you maintain soil fertility? Because, you know, that's kind of what I think is at the heart of this, this question. Um, and, and in the book I trace kind of, there are many different visions for what this means. Um, some people say, you know, after the civil war that, uh, staple crops are obviously the thing that was causing the worst environmental problems during the antebellum South. So we need to diversify what Southern farmers are growing. And so they advocate growing, you know, no more staple crops or at least diversifying what those staple crops look like. You know, other people insist that staple crops are actually good for the soil. And so there's this kind of back and forth debate about, you know, diversification, about, you know, how to kind of maintain soil fertility through what types of crops you grow. Uh, but what I show in the book is that, you know, as you get closer to the 20th century, this idea that you would just sort of completely stop growing staple crops, people realize that it's not going to happen. And so debates over farming continuously and debates over the permanence of soils really becomes a debate about how to keep growing staple crops 
without depleting the soil. And ultimately what people land on and the most popular solution uh, becomes commercial fertilizers. Um, commercial fertilizers make it seem like it's possible to grow crops indefinitely, right? You just keep adding back into the soil what you're taking out. And so in that mm -hmm. way, at least in theory, you can keep sort of cultivating the soils for all time. And they're cheap and pretty available during the New South. And so the South, uh, you know, basically becomes the biggest consumer of commercial fertilizers in the entire nation. And one of the things I show in, in the book is that, you know, in a lot of ways, this is based on this idea of permanence. People believe that commercial fertilizers would allow you to permanently farm because you were just kind of adding back in what you were taking out. And fertilizer manufacturers themselves really draw on this. They even use kind of this language of permanence to advertise to farmers throughout the region. Um, and, and so as we get, you know, into the 20th century, cotton sort of tightens its hold on the South in large part because of the availability of commercial fertilizers. And what I argue in the book is that, you know, this is because people saw them as really the easiest path to permanence. Um, it's a way that you can keep farming continuously simply by purchasing fertilizers every year and using them on, on your farm rather than having to take like really drastic action, you know, by either diversifying your farm, not growing staple crops, choosing different crops to grow, or using kind of uh, organic ways of fertilizing crops, which were very labor and time intensive. And so, you know, it's really, people say that this is, this is sort of the, the easiest path to permanence, but it's, it, I think the, that's why it kind of takes hold so quickly and, and really ultimately um, allows cotton to become more entrenched than ever by the end of uh, this, this new South era. You know, the book really got me questioning the way I've always taught progressive era conservation politics. Um, you know, it's, it's such a sprawling thing, conservation in the progressive era, you know, whether it's wildlands out west or it's public health in cities or it's, you know, or business, the way businesses are run. It, you know, it's hard to really kind of put bounds on it and, and find a through line. But, you know, I usually encourage my students to, you know, track the, the many different contexts and which many different kinds of progressives are, one, you know, praising efficiency and two, denouncing waste. And those words are flexible enough to be applied to all number of things. Um, and, and we usually spend all of our time looking at northern cities and, and you know, out in the West. And, and in chapter three of your book, you explore a wide array of new industries that popped up in the South in the late 19th century. And I think you, know, you, make, you make a really strong case that few Americans were as obsessed with efficiency and waste as these southern, these, these southern business people and public officials that you're looking at. So, so how did that come to be? And what are some examples? Of that? Right. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think one of the kind of key aspects um, of, of this is, is this kind of private impulse behind permanence. Um, business people basically kind of latched onto this idea of permanence. And they, they sort of came to believe that simply by using resources more efficiently or finding businesses that would use resources that had been uh, you know, at least in theory, wasted in the past, they would be able to kind of continue to grow the region's economy. They would be able to kind of continue to line their own pockets. Um, they would be able to secure long-term stocks of natural resources without having to take drastic action, like, you know, having the federal government come in and tell you how you can and can't use your natural resources. And that was something that was, I think, very kind of terrifying that that, that possibility could happen. And so they're always looking for ways that private businesses could be more efficient, 
or ways that municipalities could attract industries that would, say, use natural resources that had not been used intensively in the past or use resources that would sort of ease the strain on, you know, some of the resources that were used the most intensively. Um, so there are all these industries that sort of pop up that I had never heard of before, um, <laughs> right, <laughs> I mean, yeah. that, that, you know, basically sort of promised to do just this, to use either, you know, some resources that people have been using for a long time, but to do it in a more efficient way, or to use some resources that people had kind of forgotten about, or something that people had thought was just sort of completely wasted. And so, you know, they're, they're kind of all of the, all of these industries. Wood in particular, I think, becomes a really kind of popular resource for these different industries. So you see all these kind of industries pop up that promise to use wood products in, in a different, you know, or more efficient way, or to use, you know, pieces of wood that had gone, gone to waste in the past. I think probably the best example of this uh, and, and the most enduring example of this really in the whole region is is pulp and paper. Um, the pulp and paper industry migrates to the south in the early 20th century. Um, and, you know, one of the things that it promises is that it can use pieces of lumber that previously had gone to waste, either because they were too small to really use for lumber or too poor quality, that you could you could essentially make wood pulp and eventually paper out of this sort of low-grade wood products that people had wasted in the past. And so, you know, there's this kind of sense that industries like that could thrive in the South and that they could sort of ease pressure on uh, the most intensively used resources in the region, um, but that they could, you know, do it in a way that's not going to sort of invite federal oversight. It's going to be done primarily by white business people and sort of, you know, who, who kind of remain in the driver's seat of this, this economic development. And so, you know, Pulp and paper especially, I think, comes to sort of position itself as the most permanent industry in the South. Um, they are constantly comparing themselves, business people in the industry, and also sort of public officials who are trying to attract these pulp and paper mills to their, their municipality, are, are sort of constantly comparing pulp and paper mills with like uh, lumber companies, which would come in and essentially sort of clear cut everything and then move on. That was kind of their their general operating procedure and that happened throughout the, the region. Whereas a paper mill would come to an area um, and because they had there was such a sort of substantial investment to build a pulp and paper mill, they couldn't afford to do that. They probably would if they could, but they, they couldn't afford to just sort of cut everything down and move on. <laughs> and so they had to kind of invest in ways to use both resources that had gone to waste, you know, pieces of, of lumber that were either too small or too poor quality to to use in other ways. Um, and they also invested in, in forestry. It was really kind of the first corporate forestry that we see uh, in the region. And it was to kind of maintain this long-term stock of natural resources. So pulp, pulp and paper is, is definitely one of these kind of examples of an industry that promises that they're going to use something uh, that people have been using for a long time, but that they're going to do it much more efficiently than others. And they're also going to be able to kind of use raw materials that had previously previously gone to waste and, you know, either because of their size or, or their quality. There's a lot of other industries that pop up that aren't necessarily particularly associated with, um, with, with lumber. Um, for instance, cottonseed oil manufacturing. Um, one of the sort of debates that I talk about in the book is this debate over the growth of the cottonseed oil industry, which would crush 
raw cotton seed to make to make um, sort of a low grade cooking oil. Um, and the idea is that at least in theory, farmers had previously thrown most of their cotton seed away, and now they can sell it to an oil mill and use these kind of resources that have been wasted. Um, I think another example is tourism. There's this sort of sense that the South scenery had had gone to waste. And so we need to find, you know, kind of tourism industries that are going to come in and use these wasted scenic resources, as they say, um, in ways that are going to be long term and in ways that are going to kind of, you know, allow the industry to, to both ease pressure on um, things like forests uh, while creating a new industry that can kind of profit from this. Well, you've, you've told us a lot about the idea of permanence, but the book is called The Price of Permanence. Um, so let's discuss a bit um, some of the costs, some of the social and environmental costs of what we might otherwise be tempted to think of as sort of laudable attempts to rebuild the region's economy on surer footing. Um, first, with the social, you note that um, another postbellum project that's destined to last, designed to last generations was Jim Crow. And, you know, you say at one point that, that white elites sometimes refer to it as the permanent system. Um, and I think I'm safe in saying that none of these new economic initiatives you, you examine really at all challenge white supremacy. And quite to the contrary, they all seem to be more or less you know, reinforcing it, um, often by design. So could you say a bit about how these permanent industries or supposedly permanent industries undergirded Jim Crow and how Southern African-Americans responded to it? Absolutely. Uh, you know, the white business leaders, public officials who are are kind of driving this um, search for permanence are, are very open about the fact that these permanent industries are, are not only good for the environment, but they're going to create uh, this permanent social structure that's very exploitative. Um, and essentially, you know, when you kind of look at the industries that are considered to be permanent, there's, they're all sort of low wage extractive or manufacturing industries, you know, also agricultural that are dependent on manual labor. And so in a way, they don't change the kind of social and economic structure of the region radically, and they're not intended to be. And in, in fact, they're intended to kind of keep the social structure in place by keeping the region, you know, dependent on, on manual labor, which they saw as kind of, you know, key to keeping the, the social hierarchy in place, um, this very sort of exploitative social hierarchy. So it's, you know, I think it's very very much affiliated with the, the rise of Jim Crow is this kind of interest in permanence. Um, you know, just because it, it, the goal is not only to prevent radical upheavals in say, you know, having the federal government come in and, and start to manage the South's resources. It's also to prevent radical upheavals in the social hierarchy to prevent, um, you know, kind of, what might happen if big businesses suddenly start to go out of business and, and people have to kind of rethink the economy in a way that could be perhaps more radical. So, so it's, it's a very conservative impulse ultimately, I think, you know, both in terms of its sort of environmental component, but also uh, very much in terms of its, its social component, because it's, it's intended to preserve this very exploitative um, social and racial hierarchy, hierarchy in the South. And ultimately, you know, I think one of the big sort of, you know, the big price that comes out of this is social, that the vast majority of Southerners suffer as a result. The economy suffers, but but also, you know, the, the, the people suffer because business people are able to keep low wage extractive and manufacturing industry industries as the basis of the South's economy. Um, and 
the fact that they're able to kind of keep these industries in place at least for decades by securing what they see as like long-term stocks of natural resources, you know, is is really for them sort of the intended intended goal. So so you know certainly um, this this has a, a pretty dramatic effect on the people of the South. Um, and and I'll say also you know one of the things that it also does uh, is it keeps decisions about resources and how they're distributed in the hands of private corporate officials, white business people, public officials, and that type of thing. And often leads to efforts to kind of privatize resources that might have gone to um, Southern African Americans or poor whites. Um, and, and finally, I think the effects of these decisions, um, say the effects of all of these new pulp and paper mills coming into the South, um, the effects of these fall most heavily on uh, especially African-Americans living living in the South, um, because there are a lot of aspects of environmental quality that don't fit into this conception of permanence, things like air and water pollution, um, and those disproportionately affect uh, African-Americans living nearby uh, these, these supposedly permanent businesses. So it's, it's kind of a, a multi-pronged way that this contributes to Jim Crow, both by prioritizing manual labor, you know, privatizing natural resources and land, but also, you know, in just the very kind of idea that the environmental effects uh, through pollution fall most heavily on African-Americans in the South. Yeah, I'd love to talk more about some of those environmental effects. Um, because, you know, you mentioned earlier that something like a paper mill is sort of um, necessarily dedicated to what we might call sustainable practices. You got to so much capital is involved, you got to replant the forests around you. But um, and then other times, you know, of course, this the rhetoric consistently is, is you know, is, is promoting resource conservation. But you conclude that, um, quoting you here, that, that permanence, ironically, was sometimes more important than environmental quality. Um, what does that mean? And what yeah, you know, it, it's um, so basically it's important to realize that that permanence does not really have the same vision of environmental quality that we do today. When I when I talk about permanence, I'm, I'm talking about something that's sort of far different, I think, from what we consider environmental quality today. And really what what is at the heart of it is simply kind of maintaining stocks of natural resources that were valuable for corporate uses. Um, and businesses sometimes were very good at that. And in a lot of cases, they succeed at that. Um, they're able to prevent sort of crashes in natural resource stocks that um, otherwise might have happened because they were using these resources too intensively. They are able to kind of maintain long-term stocks of natural resources and maintain industries that were dependent on them for much longer than many people at the time thought was possible by kind of implementing some of these sort of corporate conservation measures or some of these kind of efficiency or waste, um, you know, efforts to kind of be more efficient and to utilize waste materials. Uh, but ultimately, the goal was not environmental quality. It was maintaining these natural resources and maintaining these for for future use. Um, and so, you know, there's this kind of myopic vision. And I think this is ultimately one of the most important aspects of the book, at least for me, is that, you know, corporate leaders kind of have this myopic vision of what permanence actually means. And for them, it's this very kind of narrow thing. It's keeping, you know, if you're a paper mill, it's keeping enough slash pines out there in your corporate forest so that you're not going to go out of business. Um, however, there are a lot of other 
aspects of environmental quality that these public officials really aren't concerned with. And they don't really fall into this aspect of, of permanence. So, you know, again, pulp and paper, I think, is a great example. Um, yes, pulp and paper employs the region's first corporate foresters. It, you know, at least manages forests in a way that we could, you know, potentially call kind of long term. Uh, but pulp and paper mills are also some of the worst polluters in the South, um, both air and water pollution. Um, and that is kind of written into the cost of, of doing business for a lot of these white business leaders and, and public officials. And they don't see that as part of this idea of, of permanence. And so ultimately, you know, because they're kind of focused solely on keeping stocks of natural resources healthy so that businesses could use them at some point in the future and continue to prosper, you know, they ignore a lot of the sort of aspects of environmental quality that uh, today certainly are, are kind of part of a more robust de definition of that, but but also at the time that people are, are worried about things like air, water pollution, um, flooding, you know, all, all sorts of kind of other aspects that really don't fall into sort of this corporate definition of what it means to be a permanent industry or even a permanent region. I think you make this gaping chasm between the pursuit of permanence and the pursuit of environmental quality really clear in the final chapter on tourism, which is, you know, an industry that we might think of as, you know, maybe pretty frequently compatible with environmental preservation. Um, but not so, you say. <laughs> Why was right, that? right. Yeah. Again, I think it's because, you know, the sort of boosters who are promoting tourism are, are promoting it as what they call, you know, very consciously a permanent industry one that can kind of continually take advantage of resources in the South that have previously gone to waste, things like uh, scenery or game or fish, and could manage these resources in a way that's going to kind of continually attract tourists for, for all time. Uh, and, and in a lot of ways, people kind of come to see tourism as uh, the word they use is the highest form of industry. That's kind of the phrase that they use to describe it. Um, you know, sort of the ultimate waste industry in a way, because, you know, forests uh, as, as scenery really had not been taken advantage of much prior to this. <laughs> and so there's this sense that if you can kind of make a use of far a forest as, as kind of a scenic vista, then you're you're taking a more hands off approach toward that, you know, the, the use of that resource and that these industries can kind of continue to draw on that for for all time. And I think a great example of this is, is sort of the, the health tourism industry that develops in the South after yeah. the Civil War. You have these boosters coming into places that have been almost entirely cut over, um, especially sort of the sand, sand hills of North Carolina, South Carolina, these areas where uh, turpentine operators had come in um, and, and really kind of intensively tap the trees for turpentine and resin uh, to, the, to the point where these forests were were, you know, many of them had problems with forest fires. Many of them were sort of totally dead and dying. And, and yet these sort of health tourist boosters come in and market these places as healthy landscapes in a way that attracts tourists from all over the, the nation. And these become some of the most popular places in all the United States. Um, you know, Pinehurst, North Carolina is, is a great example of this, a place that was cut over that basically had no economic prospects until this tourist booster essentially sort of had the idea that these cutover pine forests could be marketed as healthy. And suddenly this landscape that had been wasted is valuable again. And so there's, you know, I think with tourism, you, you kind of see 
this same sort of idea, right? Tourism is, is really the ultimate waste industry. It's an industry that uses resources that sort of had, had gone to waste previously and tries to use them in, in a more efficient way. But that didn't mean preservation. That meant managing these resources so that they could continually be used for kind of the long-term uh, growth of the South and for the municipalities that were involved in this. And so, you know, often this requires very hands-on care. And I think probably the best example of this is uh, game and fish, uh, which I write about kind of at the end of that chapter where, mm -hmm. um, you know, to attract hunters and fishermen from outside of the region, uh, Southern tourism boosters begin developing these massive private game preserves, uh, in, in some cases, hundreds of thousands of acres uh, that were off limits to everybody but these yeah, sort wow. of wealthy hunters. And the idea is that they would sort of breed game fish that were valuable species for, for hunting or fishing. Um, and, and that didn't necessarily mean, you know, maintaining sort of the environmental quality of this, this whole parcel. It just meant you know, promoting this one species over basically all of the others that were that were there. And so there's this kind of sense that it involves, I think, um, very much hands-on management, but in a way that's going to kind of keep tourists coming for, for all time. I got to say, when I, you know, finishing your book, I, I thought to myself that it would, it would be much less disquieting a story if we could say that it was, you know, just about the South or just about a time a century past. Um, but, you know, this, this, as we've kind of hinted at here, this now archaic concept of permanence sort of rhymes with our current popular goals of sustainability. And, you know, sustainability, they're not the same, as we've said here, the environmental quality is not a part of it. Certainly, the often sustainability involves a attention to justice. And as we've said very explicitly, justice is not as part of, of permanence, um, at least as we would define it. Um, but, you know, but there is, I think there is a lot of overlap still. And I think a lot of things that people would do today that they would, they would look like permanence would also could also brand themselves, you know, industries could brand themselves as being sustainable. So I, I guess I'm wondering in what ways um, does sort of this, the, the reign of permanence that you've narrated here um, give you reservations about the efficacy, if it does, about the efficacy of environmental politics built around the pursuit of sustainability? Yeah. You know, when I started the book, I, I, in no way thought I was going to be writing about sustainability, which is um, <laughs> sort of one of the twists that this project took along the way, uh, especially as I discovered this concept of permanence and began thinking about sort of thinking about it in a, in a broader sense. And I, I, you're right. I started seeing parallels between permanence and sustainability um, in a lot of places. And as I thought more about the South, I realized that it's like a great laboratory in a way for thinking through, you know, how sustainably, you know, how maybe an early conception of sustainable development sometimes works and sometimes doesn't, right? Um, and in a lot of ways, you know, I think the South is a great example today because, you know, one of the uh, sort of ideas now is, you know, how do we bring sustainability to developing regions? And I think this, the new South, the post-Civil War South, in a lot of ways resembled developing areas more than it did the rest of the United States, especially at that time. And so, you know, I think it, it can be a useful example of at least thinking through some of the kind of promise and, and peril of sustainability. And you're right. I, I you know, I, I hate to leave people on kind of a, a dour note, but I, I, I certainly <laughs> came away with a sense that permanence and sustainability do have some uh, parallels often in, in troubling ways. Um, and I think, you know, really at 
its heart, what I came to see with permanence is that, you know, it was a developmental solution to environmental problems. It wasn't a solution that involved radical changes in people's behavior by design. It wasn't a solution that involved radical changes mm -hmm. in sort of the social hierarchy that might bring, you know, kind of more elements of justice by design. Um, it was simply kind of a way to continue to have economic growth while coping with the South's kind of environmental limits. Um, and, you know, in some ways I see some similarities, you're right, with sustainability. Um, one um, uh, sort of advocate recently called sustainability a lifestyle designed for permanence, which I, I talk a little bit about in my book. And, and so, there, you know, there's... <laughs> There's definitely some some similarities here, and I, th I think especially when you kind of think about the role of business, that's where I see a lot of these these similarities. Because I think you know, in some ways, um, the definition of permanence that business leaders sort of come up with, the goal is that they can have resources available for long-term economic growth without having to sort of radically rethink their corporate behavior or change the way they do business. Um, and, and I think, you know, the same goes for public officials who are trying to attract permanent industries to the South. The goal is basically to be able to continue to build up the local economy, to continue to kind of attract industries to the region, um, maintain economic growth without really having to kind of radically rethink what, what they're doing. And so, you know, I think in some ways I see some parallels there with sustainability in that, you know, it's a way to kind of cope with environmental limits while maintaining economic growth. And that's really where I see some of the kind of troubling aspects of it. Um, you know, it doesn't kind of challenge the idea that, uh, you know, sort of growth is the way we, we solve the problem, right? Um, especially, you know, I think businesses, as they kind of get behind this concept, um, they do it in a way that sort of promises that the business will continue to be profitable, um, you know, while while taking these kind of measures. But I, I think ultimately the problem with permanence was that, was that, you know, the, the thing that was really at the heart of permanence was profit. Um, and the result was that they kind of have this myopic vision of what environmental quality means, um, that they never really radically have to think about sort of corporate behavior in a way that could have brought about sort of more far-reaching change. Basically, that they were just kind of able to hit their marks without really thinking very deeply about, about what, was, what was happening, without really challenging uh, what Don Worcester calls the maximizing creed behind sort of the capitalist economy. Um, and, and really, you know, I think for me, this, this it, you know, makes me think about that there, there is a need. I think, you know, business... Is, is an important player in solving a lot of the environmental crises that we face today. It has to be. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I, I kind of, some of the optimism that I take from this book is that in the past businesses have and, you know, have, have succeeded in, I think, greening big parts of their operations. Um, but the other thing I take away is that, you know, unless we're kind of open to really like fundamentally rethinking the relationship between business and the environment, we're not going to be able to really kind of bring about the far reaching change perhaps that we need to address some of these, you know, really kind of pressing environmental, environmental issues. And I think, you know, that's kind of the, the lesson of the new South in a way is that business leaders succeeded in a lot of ways, but at, 
you know, when you kind of take stock of where the region is in the 1930s, 1940s, um, it certainly doesn't look like much success. And, and the reason for that was because they're able to kind of stave off any sort of drastic change. They're able to sort of continue business as usual by sort of adhering to this, this vision of permanence that they, that they develop. You, your comments about how the project evolved in twists and turns that surprised you along the way has me wondering about its origins. So how did you come to write this book? Yeah, you know, so it started actually as I was an undergraduate student um, a long time ago. Um, I, I did some research as an undergraduate on a cotton mill um, in Greenville, South Carolina that sued the city. And uh, it's it sued essentially because of uh, pollution in the local river that had collected in its mill dam and was basically hindering its ability to do business. And it essentially, this is in the 1910s, 1920s, forced the city to develop sort of modern sanitation infrastructure. And so that project in a lot of ways kind of started me thinking about the role of business and conservation in um, the South and, and, and really kind of nationally, but especially especially in the South. Um, and, and I realized that that was something that you know, wasn't really a part of the conservation movement, um, or at least the writing on the conservation movement uh, very prominently. I mean, you know, business leaders in the South kind of fall outside of the scope of most histories of the conservation movement. And they're kind of, <laughs> yes. in a lot of ways, right, caricatured as, as these kind of people who, who really were willing to just kind of sell the South's pristine environment for for a dollar. Um, and so, you know, that that was kind of the, the place where I started, just sort of rethinking the role of business in the conservation movement generally and rethinking the role of business in, in, in this. And, and the project, yes, took many twists and turns and led me down many paths that I did not uh, especially anticipate when I, when I started. But, but I think that kind of focus on business, you know, really goes back to sort of my undergraduate work. In a well, lot the book again is The Price of Permanence, Nature and Business in the New South. My guest is William Bryan. And Will, before I let you go, um, I'm just dying to know with this book off your plate and out into the world, what are you giving your attention to now? Yeah, so I'm, I'm uh, at least in the, hopefully the final stages of a, uh, another book on uh, ecotourism, basically kind of the origins of ecotourism in the United States and developing world. In some ways, it builds off of this book and especially the final chapter of this book, which discusses tourism. Um, but in this this new book, I, I explore what I call the first generation of green developers in the United States and kind of their role in generating enthusiasm for like green tourism experiences and kind of creating this demand for these these sort of green tourism experiences. And so the book kind of traces their efforts in developing really an entirely new industry based on green tourism, but also the, the effects of this, this tourism uh, on landscapes and people, both in the United States, but also in parts of the developing world. So it's, it's really kind of a way to, to think about the origins of this ecotourism industry that today is, is I think, really significant, um, both economically and, and really just on the landscape throughout, uh, throughout the United States and, and developing world. So that's, that's really kind of the project that I'm, I'm pretty invested in in right now. Oh, that's fascinating. Oh, I'm really excited. I hope you'll come back and talk to us about it when it's out. Absolutely. All right. My guest again, Will Bryan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Really enjoyed it.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.